Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, I'll bring you the latest news, discoveries and stories here from the University of Glasgow's College of Arts and Humanities. Hello and a very warm welcome back to Stories from Glasgow and to the final episode of our current season. We are rounding off season three with a slightly different story, a more personal one, as I am joined by Dr. Matthew Leeper. Matthew is founder and managing director of Education Evolved and student enterprise support advisor here at the University of Glasgow. But before Matthew occupied those roles, he was a history PhD here in the College of Arts and Humanities. I don't want to give too much away, but Matthew is going to share the story of his journey from PhD all the way through to entrepreneur, his experiences, his advice, and all those pivotal moments that occurred along the way. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Over to Matthew. I'm Matthew Leeper. I am the founder and managing director of Education Evolved and also the student and graduate enterprise advisor at the University of Glasgow. And I'm also a business advisor for a recent startup called Scissortail Digital Marketing. You're going to talk to us today about your journey into entrepreneurship via your PhD and all of your other experiences. And I think you've got a slightly different story and journey to kind of the average arts PhD. Is that fair to say, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that might might be a little bit fair to say. Yeah. So do you want to maybe start by telling us a little bit about your early entrepreneurship experiences? Like, is this something that you were interested in when you were younger or is this something that came after the PhD? Yeah, no, it was definitely something I was interested in when I was younger. The two journeys began kind of similar times. My family, particularly my my grandfather, was very into history. So growing up, it was always around, you know, visiting grandparents' house. There's the Ken Burns Civil War collection, VHS proudly displayed and constantly reading history books and talking history. So history was was a big part early life. But the entrepreneurship bug kind of bit me when I was about 16. Got my driver's license, living in Oklahoma, where I'm from. We immediately jumped in. A couple friends and I started a lawn care landscape business. Initially, family, friends, you know, who don't want to mow a yard in 40 degree Celsius temperatures, paying us a little bit to come and do it. From there, we, we kind of just grew that. But of course, we were all 16, still in high school, not really the best time schedule to, to actually run a business. So we ran it for a few months during the summer. Did all right. But that, that's really where my entrepreneurship journey started. After high school at the age of 18, a different friend and I this time started, again, a, a lawn care landscape company um, that also did general contracting, so fence building, concrete pouring, those those kinds of things. We did it for about 18 months, officially made it a, a business that time, but the financial crisis in 08, 09, was a bit delayed hitting Oklahoma because Oklahoma's very oil industry focused, so they were a bit inflated for the for the moment. But when that really hit, we started taking a few losses, and we ended up exiting out of that and, and selling the assets and the and the contracts to a, another company. So that was really my first early entrepreneurship journey. And, and because the entrepreneurship journey, while I was still always interested in history, I started my undergraduate at the University of Central Oklahoma as a business administration undergrad. In my second semester, 
of my undergraduate. So still year one. And and looking back, I will say that this was naivety, but I just recently sold that business and got into a disagreement with the lecturer about how long you had to run a business before you could sell it. I got up out of that lecture, mid-lecture, after our discussion, packed up, walked out and walked to the registrar's office and changed to history. I decided that if I was going to be at university, I was going to do what I enjoyed. I had kind of felt at the time that I had proven myself that I could run a business, I could make my own way. So I wasn't at university just to get a degree to get a job. I was at university for personal development, personal growth, and to really engage in something that that I was interested in. And and that's where history really came to the forefront for me. That's quite the change. At any point, did you regret changing to history or did you think throughout this was the right decision for me? I don't know if I would say I regretted it, but after I sold that business, I I went and got a job at an electronics retail store that that was commission sales. Mm -hmm. I did really well in that, was working full-time while also managing a full-time course load. But, you know, at the age at that point, I was 19, 20 you know, bigger paychecks can start blinding you a bit. By the end of the second year of my university, so a year later after I had kind of transitioned to history from business admin, my thought process was very much, is university still the right place for me to be? So I started looking at leaving university and doing more sales and and whatever pathway I chose. But there was a study abroad program being advertised in that final semester. And one of the lecturers that I was studying with, um, her name's Dr. Margaret Musgrove, you know, it was a level four and I was a level two student sitting in this ancient Greek history class. And I just absolutely loved it. And the study abroad program, the short term faculty led study abroad was led by her for the history side of it. And it was two and a half weeks in Rome. And so I was like, you know, go to Rome. Yeah, it's for credit. It's one class credit, but I've never been to Europe. Yeah, there's some a bit of schoolwork, but I was planning on leaving university. So I wasn't too fussed about the, the work. So got on the plane, went to Rome. First day was kind of just like getting to know the neighborhood, had some pizza, all, all good. But day two, there's moments in your life that stick out to you. And, and day two is one of them. First stop of the day was the Largo Argentina, which is a, a square of temples kind of towards the center of Rome, learned a bit about Julius Caesar and the layers of Rome as the the course was titled, because that's a lovely place because you can kind of see Pompey's theater, then the temples, and then kind of Renaissance Rome and then modern Rome sitting on top. But as we walk from there, we're we're walking to the Pantheon and and there's little narrow alleyways. and, And we come out of this alleyway and we turn right and I'm staring down the Pantheon. This was the kind of the aha moment. And I actually have a photo because it, it struck me so much that I'm not a photo taker, but I picked up my camera and I took a photo. But that was the first time that history to me kind of left the pages of textbooks and became real. It was tangible. I had read about the building and the in the course prep work. They had been talking about it, but now it was right in front of me. It wasn't just a photo. It wasn't just a paragraph description. It was very real. From that moment for the rest of the, that kind of two, two and a half weeks in Rome, I probably drove the, the professors a bit batty, following them around, sticking right to them, asking as many questions as I could. That was a, such a pivotal moment because when I arrived back in Oklahoma, I did a complete 180. I had already decided to do the 180 basically on the flight home. And I went in to work after my vacation, 
turned in my notice, enrolled in all history classes in year three, ended up quite soon after working in the history department as a, a student worker and then a tutor. And so so that was really my my journey and and pivoting deeper into history from where I thought I was going to be and and definitely don't regret that. That's such a really iconic place to have that kind of pivotal moment in your life as well. I mean, Rome and being able to see those different layers. I'm very envious of that. So was it just classical ancient history that you were gravitating towards or did that kind of then make you go, okay, I want to explore all these different other periods as well? So when I was growing up, like I said, history was a big thing, but I wasn't really into more modern history. What really got me deeper into history was video games. Okay. So when I was about 12, 13, there was a game called Stronghold Crusader. It was like a real-time strategy, build castles, and fight crusades. And that really got me pulled in because that game had, while it's, of course, fictitious in parts because it has to be entertaining, one of the characters was Richard the Lionheart who you could fight with and he was one of the top characters and as you play the game there it kind of tells his story and that really got me interested and then I started reading about him and and learning about him and learning about castles so the middle ages was actually where my strong interest was up till that Rome trip and then I kind of really got into ancient history and yeah I mean then then basically year three and four not only did I do a history but I, I minored in Latin classics Greek classics took extensive Latin courses for the last couple years. So a lot of that was very much the focus at that point was was ancient history. Obviously, you finish and you graduate. And at some point, we're very lucky to get you at the University of Glasgow. So did you do your master's with us as well as your PhD? After I finished my undergraduate, I went to work at a startup in Oklahoma City. At the time, they were the second largest e-retail website in the U.S., right behind Amazon. It was my first kind of full-time job out of undergrad. I was a site merchandiser. My sales experience kind of helped me get there and because it was just selling products on pages and building those product pages. About three months after that, they promoted me into a international buyer position. And so then I was buying the product that the company was selling to the EU in the UK markets. And I did that for about another 10 months. And then the company restructured and I was a bit burned out. While there was a lot of lovely perks there, the perks were definitely meant to keep you at your desk. Three catered meals a day, open bar Fridays, all of it was very nice. There's only so many 75, 80 hour weeks you can work for a year before you're a bit done. So that was also great because I, while I obviously not my company, I did get to learn a lot about startup culture, tech startup culture, good practices and bad practices. And once we finished there, I had gotten married at that point and my wife wanted to study in France to finish her French degree. And we moved to France and lived in France for six months in a, in a city called Amiens. I did nothing. I was on a, I was on a tourist visa, long-term tourist visa and just decompressed from the previous year, essentially. While we were in Amiens, we decided that we were going to go for master's programs. And that's where University of Glasgow came in. We kind of applied broadly around the UK to universities that had programs that we were both happy with. And Glasgow was our, our top pick at the end. And when we came here, I was in the classics MLIT. So focusing on ancient history and a bit of Latin linguistics. And my dissertation was about the uh, the role of populist politics in the fall of the Roman Republic. 
so again that's that interest from your undergraduate and that road trip perhaps coming through yeah yeah absolutely during that master's program we even went back to rome to meet with the professors with that i had gone on the original rome trip with mm-hmm. because they run it annually so i'm very jealous of all this travel you got to do for your masters thinking about your undergraduate and your masters what kind of skills did you think do you think you were gaining from them at the time obviously that's still quite the switch from the business yeah focus yeah. initially i would first say that the initial skill set that the masters specifically taught me was just how culturally different academics and academia can be. There was a steep learning curve coming from University of Central Oklahoma to the University of Glasgow. Um, Not that my undergraduate didn't prepare me, it very much did. Without the skill sets and writing, research, arguments, and analyzing, I, I wouldn't have ever made it to Glasgow. But coming to Glasgow was was a bit of an eye-opener because I had to learn how to write to a new audience, and I had to learn how to write to a new audience very, very quickly. There's some really interesting juxtapositions between U.S. and U.K. academia and how students are expected to develop, and it's almost reversed of each other. So that was always a really interesting thing for me to kind of grapple with, but but grapple with it, I did. And so that was probably one of the, the big lessons immediately. But in general, you know, critical thinking, soft skills, communication, writing, analyzing, synthesizing data and knowledge and information, all of the, those skill sets, of course, they, they build on each other as you get further and further into your studies. But all of them are something that today at Education Evolved, I, I still apply day in and day out. And, and, you know, a lot of even going back to like my sales, right, knowing how to synthesize the information people give you during the discovery process to find out what they what they need or what they want, being able to listen, actively listen, synthesize that data and understand at a, at a deep level how you can help them. That's a that's a skill set that is applicable to business and, and to life and to everything else. And, and it's a skill set that you do develop throughout your studies, um, but especially in kind of a post-grad level. I think for me, looking critically back at my arts experience and comparing it to yours, I feel like at the time you don't realise that you're picking up on all of these skills until you're out of it. And then you kind of go, oh yeah, I can do that. And I can analyse these things and I can communicate in this way. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that really opened my eyes early to that skill set was when I was at University of Central Oklahoma, one of the speakers that we we had a on History Honor Society, Phi Alpha Theta. And one of the speakers that we brought in, he was a historian by degree, but not by trade. Um, he had a PhD okay. in, in history from, I think it was Yale. And during his PhD, he met somebody else in the PhD program in history at Yale. And they were both quite entrepreneurial. And so when they left okay. Yale, instead of doing the academic thing, they started a hedge fund. They worked in the hedge fund and grew the hedge fund over the course of about nine or 10 years. They were still running it, but at that point they had the ability to kind of take a step back. And then he was the professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Central Oklahoma with a history PhD. And he came and talked to us and his whole talk was about soft skills and about how art students, you know, if they enter the business world, business school graduates will make more than them Initially, when you look at a 10-year timeline, on average, art students make more than the business school students 10 years later because of the soft skills. And that's what he was really highlighting was, 
you know, in their hedge fund, when they're looking for financial analysts, they don't hire finance majors. They hire scientists. They hire art students mm-hmm. because these are the students that are coming out with transferable analytical skills. That was kind of an eye opener for me because that might have been the moment retrospectively looking back where I could say suddenly my interest in history that I had switched into from business admin but also my interest in running businesses kind of collided. So with that in mind and having that example from so early on in my higher education journey allowed me to kind of make decisions that, again, weren't always necessarily going, what is the employability on the, on the back end of this program? It was very much understanding that as long as I made the most of the program, I would have skills that would make me employable and really set me up for longer term success, not the immediate success. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And do you think, again, retrospectively, do you think that having that example is something that subconsciously you maybe picked up on when you were doing things like applying for your PhD and then moving on to set up your own business? Yeah, definitely. I, I think you know, during the application of my PhD, I, I really thought I was, and even early in my PhD, I really was thinking mm-hmm. I was going to go into academia because at that point I had okay. kind of been in the journey. And and to say that my, my PhD, I went back to my original love, which was medieval history. Because when I left my master's of literature in classics, I decided to go back towards more history rather than linguistics. What was it that made you make that switch? A bit of just the programs that were available moving forward and the supervision teams at U of G and Classics at the time. I had a great supervisor for my master's program, but it was one of those things that I just didn't feel like I was I was gelling like I had in the previous two years. The classics were losing a bit of the interest. Retrospectively, I probably should have stuck with it because populism and politics you know, I quit it right before Trump was elected. There could have been some lovely tie-ins if I did a PhD there. Um, but instead, I went back to medieval history um, and actually went back to what got me interested in it, which was Richard the Lionheart, Richard the First. Of course, I ended up writing about his dad, which was Henry II, and analyzing his diplomatic history with, with the church in the 12th century. But yeah, I, I kind of came back home, so to speak, and back into the Middle Ages and, and you know, really got re-energized because I hadn't studied it in depth. I had always kept reading, um, but I hadn't studied it in depth in a formal process. And so being able to not only do that, but do that at such a high level and such a level of depth that a PhD gives you, you know, three to four years of deep exploration and really pushing the boundaries of scholarship was great. And I think that also kind of tickled that entrepreneur part of my brain because entrepreneurship is all about doing something different, doing something new. And so that, that really helped me move forward. But again, probably up through about two and a half years of the PhD, I really felt like academia was where I was aiming. But then when I finished my PhD, COVID had hit and that kind of like a bowling ball hitting 10 pens, you know, everything just explodes and blows up and you have your back to the drawing board. Uh, And so that's where kind of everything then changed direction. Tell us a bit more about that change in direction then. So you've alluded to education evolved a little bit already. Do you want to tell us the story of how it came about? Yeah, so education evolved. After I finished my PhD, I was one of the last in-person vivas at the University of Glasgow before it all got shut down, which means, you know, they, they issued me three months corrections, but with no library, there's no corrections. So three month corrections became nine month corrections. And during that time, you know, I feel like most people feel a bit of drift after a PhD. You, you've poured so much into it. 
that once you submit, it's almost anticlimactic. And then also, okay, now what? Yeah, you know, because especially that final kind of month push, it, it's all you you eat it, you breathe it, you live it. And so I had a lot of energy that I was looking to apply elsewhere, but I'm stuck in the house. I can't do anything. So that was about the time where the entrepreneurship started coming back to the surface for me. And I really didn't have anything that was like commercialization out of my PhD directly. I had been applying for academic jobs, but with COVID, everything was really slow. And also nobody really knew what was going on. And so I started thinking, okay, well, I've got an enhanced level of skill sets. I have these large networks I've been facilitating in, in the UK and abroad for the last five years. I still have all my networks back in the US. Let's start investigating potential business ideas. So the first idea I came up with was basically a tutoring service and looking for what made us unique. I was thinking, well, we'll use PhD students and PhD candidates as the tutors. That way, when you hire a, a tutor through us, you're kind of getting somebody who's right on that cutting edge of the latest research because that's what a PhD is all about. But after doing some market research, talking to people, there was interest, but not enough that I felt like I could actually capitalize on and move forward with. Put that on the, on the kind of the side burner, the back burner and said, okay, well, not quite that. And then I started looking at the university, the process of university, where I went to next. And, and I started talking to people at, at the University of Glasgow, at the University of Edinburgh, getting some ideas and really looking at the entrance process and in particular, the clearance process and realizing that the, the system is asking 18 year olds to negotiate with these massive institutions for a spot. And I thought, that feels a bit one-sided. I mean, it's maybe good experience, but that's that's quite daunting. Um, thinking back to when I was 18, yeah, I don't think I would have called up a university and said, hey, you got a spot for me. I'd have applied. And if they said no, I'd have been like, okay, yeah, fair. Um, you, you know, who, who thinks to make an argument to a university to, to bring you on? And I thought maybe there's something there that could be of use. And looking at would universities allow somebody to negotiate on a person's behalf? And that was fairly positive and talking to students and parents. And they were like, yeah, that would actually be lovely if we could just hire somebody to help us get through clearance. But what really, really put the brakes on that was the indemnity insurance. If, you know, we didn't get somebody in the university they wanted and they, they started legal action. So the insurance companies were more than happy to take my money and it was going to be a lot of money which meant that maybe we, the service wouldn't be as accessible as I was hoping. People with a lot of financial support from home usually aren't the ones struggling to get into university. Um, and I was very much looking at this from a widening participation aspect. I had to put that one on the back burner too. Not quite there, not, not, not what we needed. Then started back to the drawing board, started working with my networks in the US. And of course, we're still during COVID, lockdowns, travel bans, all that fun, fun parts. And this was about June or so during during COVID. And they, they said, um, I was talking to one of the, my friends and previous professors and, and mentor really from the University of Central Oklahoma. He said that he was running a study abroad program because he normally runs the one to London from the university. And I thought, that's weird. You can't fly. How, how are you running a study abroad program? And he said, well, we're bringing them all to a classroom, sitting them all six feet apart with masks, opening windows, and having professors and lecturers from around the EU and the UK doing Zoom lectures, like six hours a day for two weeks. And I just thought that is like the most boring, awful thing I can imagine thinking you're signing up to go to Europe and then actually you're just sitting in a classroom for two weeks watching, watching Zoom screens. And so we started kind of discussing how we could deliver 
a virtual study abroad experience, understanding that it will never be a perfect copy because you can't bring the culture and the the atmosphere of being in a foreign country. But we can bring the locations. We can bring academics that they might not even have access to if they were here because it's my network and not that professors or so on. And so we really started investigating how we could use and incorporate virtual reality and this idea of virtual study abroad. And we found some really interesting information during our market research that, you know, there's only 1.77% of U.S. higher education students ever study abroad, which for me was astonishing because, well, I won't say it was astonishing because it is quite expensive, but I felt like having no innovation movement on that front when it was so impactful to my own higher education journey. That was really the problem I was looking to solve, not just COVID, but long-term post-COVID. And what we did is we started working around it and looking at how we could build a course that could be delivered and designed for the professor at the institution in the U.S. and really building a bespoke, customized program that fit their intended learning outcomes and the right locations and the right people and deliver that from the U.S. and really bringing that cost down to make as much of the study abroad experience possible. So that that's that's really where Education Evolved then began. That was the idea that we thought there's actually something here because the average cost of that short-term study abroad, I didn't pay this, but by the time we had been, you know, 10 years later discussing it, it's $12,000 per student. Of course, that limits and then you're not surprised that it's 1.77% taking advantage of these programs. And so we got the cost down to about 500 a student, you know, and this makes it far more accessible. It makes the benefits of studying abroad more equitable. And that was our, our key. That's where education of all began. And from there, we've, we've just constantly grown into, into new directions, but directions that stay true to our, our, our focus, which is to make education accessible. And now we have the virtual study abroads are still something we do. They're now just a part of the service that we call history in the metaverse. We built history in the metaverse, which does do kind of full virtual study abroad programs. But also, if you have an existing course, maybe it's Scottish Reformation, and you would like a VR immersive experience for your students of Glasgow Cathedral, we can build that just for that class. That's something we can do, or we could build a, a whole course. Like we are, are in talks with one university looking at going to they're, they're based in Scotland, but we're looking at going to Cordoba, Spain, and capturing all these historic sites in Spain. And that way they can take virtually their students sitting in the middle of a classroom in Scotland to Spain and really help them engage with what they're learning about. So, so we do all that, but then also we opened it to the public. We build our own virtual reality educational experiences. And so you pay a subscription, it's $9.99 a month. There's about 30 hours of historical seminars from researchers from around the world. And then we also have all of our virtual reality experiences. And while they are virtual reality, again, with this idea of equitable and accessible, they can be accessed on any digital device. So you don't need a VR headset. You can access them through a computer screen, cell phone, tablet. They act then a bit more like Google Earth. But the nice part is, is we can embed hotspots. So as you go through the site, you can click buttons at your own pace, watch videos, read little synopses, and really understand the history and the culture not only of Scotland, but of the location that you're visiting. And a lot of times for some of our locations, the information we provide, which is provided by academics that we partner with, 
are far more detailed than if you were physically there. That's kind of a, a nice thing for us. And, and what we've realized through that service is that it's a tourism generator. We, we designed it for education. But what we see is a lot of our members say, I would have never visited Castle Screen and Loch Gilphead, and now I want to go there. Now I'm planning a trip there. I never would have gone to Loch Dune Castle in Ayrshire, but now I'm going. That's been a happy accident, to quote Bob Ross, or, you know, happy mistake. And so, so we have history in the metaverse. And then we were like, you know, we have all these lovely tours, but they're self-guided. What else could we do? Well, we could do... Mm-hmm guided virtual tourism. So we just take those locations in VR and we did our tour guides to do a tour through the site. And that's really looked at the US market. And again, it's all about making history, making education and and making learning new things and experiencing things from around the world accessible, bringing it to your home where you don't have to travel. Although, you know, we're not here to kill the tourism industry. We want to help everybody. But making it accessible. So we, we have the history in the metaverse and guided virtual tours. Then we got approached because of our VR experience to develop a educational video game in partnership with the University of Glasgow and the Ethnic Minority Environmental Network, which is part of CMVO Scotland. So it was a really interesting experiment in industry, community, and academia partnerships to design something that is fun to play, engaging is going to engage new audiences who aren't your typical people to sit down and read maybe a blog post or especially an academic article. We built this game that really tries to depict Scotland in 2045, post-net zero transition, and looking, because of our community partner, looking at how what ethnic minority communities in Scotland and, and in particular Glasgow are doing to help reach net zero and really focusing on traditional ecological knowledge. And so we built this game where it's a it's a very short game. Um, my developer would tell you it's still a prototype. Um, he, he would probably be chastising me right now for saying game. We built this game where we highlight the voices of these communities. That's what we needed to do is highlight the voices and their experiences and what they're doing to reach net zero. And so not only while you play the game, you learn about activities like wildflower meadow planting and wildlife pond creation, and sustainable farming practices, water collection, all of these things, you know, cyclical economy, you know, repurposing fabrics, these kinds of things is is what these, these groups are already doing. They're already doing it. So all we had to do is highlight it, highlight the people who are active in this, but not only highlight it, but give people who play the game something to do after the game. So not only do we highlight what they're doing, but we, we make sure that it's very clear who's doing what activities and how they're doing it and how you can get into contact with them. What good is an educational video game if at the end of it, you go, well, uh, I learned something. That was fun. Spent 10 minutes. Next thing. We wanted something that people who play it and engage with it can take it away. Take something away and, and take a next step in the real world, not just in a video game. So that was seven, seven voices, one future. And that was produced, um, like I said, in partnership with the University of Glasgow, led by Dr. Mark Wong in the School of Social Sciences, Acus and Andrew from EMEN at CMVO. So that was a really awesome project. So that's how we got into educational video game development. We're now doing several other projects around the University of Glasgow, but also universities around Scotland, um, England, and North Ireland. Then our last thing, which we're still coming to terms with, is, is what we call, at the moment, we call education project development. And basically, these are for projects that are looking at everything from digital museum exhibitions to developing 
tech solutions for spinouts. I don't want to say catch-all because it is quite specific, but what it's looking at is technology development services that we can provide to our university and higher education and further education partners to really take that next step, whether that's creating a digital exhibition that maybe they thought was unobtainable because of skill sets internally. For the spinouts, it's being that partner that's in their corner, helping them go through that process of starting a business. Having done it myself, coming from academia into entrepreneurship, I know a lot of the struggles they're going to face both in business, but also within themselves. One of the big things that I learned really quickly in business is in academia, you want everything as close to perfect as possible. And that's not possible in business. And so a lot of businesses is really uncomfortable. It was really uncomfortable for me coming out of my PhD into running a business because I I wanted to have all the data and create something that was as perfect as possible. Um, And that that just doesn't, isn't how it works. That's kind of what Education Evolves does today um, and where we started and really how we started with ideas that were not good ideas and where we've come since. Could you imagine going back in time and talking to yourself at that moment in Rome and kind of saying, you've had this moment, you're in 10 15 years time, whatever, you're going to be facilitating this for people around the world and giving them that, that moment with history almost. I wouldn't have. I I, I probably looked at myself like I was crazy. I do think that while I was focused on my studies and really thinking I was going into academia, I very much looked at the mentors from my undergrad and I looked at that Mm -hmm. Rome trip. and, And so for me, academia was always, you know, as long as I could give one other person that same moment that I had, that was it. That was success. That was success for me. And I, and I still feel that way with Education Evolved. If, if I can create something that allows somebody at a, at a university or even on their own to have that aha moment, you know, that, that is success for me. That is what I market by. So no, I, I wouldn't have. And, and even in our activities, I still carry that, that mentality. Um, I tell when anytime I meet a new academic who's approached us for any kind of assistance, whether it's VR or video game development or, you know, educational project development, I always tell them, you know, the last thing I want them to do is to hand me a brief sheet or a spec sheet and say, build this. That's not great for me. Yeah, we can do it, but we are much happier coming in from the beginning. I want to sit in the corner of the room, listening intently and By the end of the project, I want to be the non-expert expert expert in whatever we're doing, because that's the only way that I can embrace their passion and their vision and turn it into something exceptional. And that's what we strive to do. And, And it's all about making that aha moment, whether that's somebody who's trying to make that transition from academia to entrepreneurship, or if it's just one of our lifelong learners who's exploring Scotland from their couch. Obviously, you've been in operation for a while now, and this year you took part in Converge Challenge as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how that went? This is actually our second year in in Converge Challenge. Last year, we did the kickstart, but we got too many projects um, and we had to narrow our focus. So we had to to withdraw our entry from it, um, which we got into the semifinals last year, and we, we had to withdraw at that point. But this year, we have a bit of a bigger team at Education Evolved. So we were we were in a better position to push forward. So we went forward again, this time with the Create Change Challenge. So a bit of a bigger, bigger competition. And we got into the semifinals and we we did the training, which was which was quite useful and interesting to always hear various perspectives 
about people who have run businesses and, and provide these kinds of training. And we just went to the Innovation Showcase, which is like a pitching competition for, for our category in front of about 200, 300 people over in Edinburgh. First out the gate, which is a bit nerve wracking. We were the first pitch of the night, not just even of the category. I was expecting it as the old adage goes, you know, first through the wall always always takes the punches. Um, so I was expecting some hiccups, but it actually went really, really well. And we ended up winning best pitch for category for the night, which was quite exciting. That was a lot of fun. And, and I've met some fantastic people through the cohort and some really passionate people who are starting businesses that are, are very much focused, much like myself, on, on delivering some kind of social good, trying to make positive impact. And I, and I think that's something that you see in a lot of particularly coming out of the arts, which a lot of them were in that category. There's a, a real movement of creating things that are socially good and good for society. So met a lot of very inspiring people from my time at, in the training and the programs and, and everything like that. And we are currently waiting to hear back if we're moving to the finals or not. We submitted our business plan and financial forecasts and all that fun things. Well, first of all, fingers crossed and good luck. <laughs> That'd be amazing. It's amazing it, to hear there's more art businesses coming through. Yeah, there, there's quite a few people from the arts so so that that was really great to see um, because being in student graduate enterprise here at University of Glasgow, you, we work with a lot of students and really a lot of alumni because students, much like myself, you don't have a lot of time to run a business because um, you're, you're busy mm-hmm. focusing on the important stuff at, at uni. And so we work with a lot of alumni and, and we support students from all over the university, you know, first and foremost. But it's always interesting to see where ideas come from. And, and in our incubator right now, you know, we have physicists who are now computer programmers and we have people from the arts running digital marketing companies and running nonprofits that support first generation students. Um, so, so it's really interesting and exciting to see how your degree doesn't necessarily define what you do. And all of them are using transferable skills from their degrees and from their their experiences to fuel their entrepreneurship journey. And, and that's really awesome to see. Kind of brings me up neatly onto another topic, which is the many different hats you're currently wearing in terms of your day-to-day jobs. So not only do you have education involved, but you're also working with student enterprise. Yeah. So kind of say I, I wear two hats. I'm the student enterprise advisor here at Glasgow. And then I'm also, like you said, uh, running Education Evolves. And yeah, that that keeps me very, very busy. A lot of work. Um, Work-life balance need not apply right now. Although I do try to get some some vacations and and some evenings here or there and try to take at least one day a weekend off if I can. Can be a a challenge to juggle, but you know, the PhD well prepared me. I never really took my foot off the gas after the PhD ended. It's kind of just a continuation and I'm, I'm still just in that groove. But no, I, I, I do love both roles though. And, and one, you know, they, they kind of inform each other. My journey with Education Evolved helps me empathize and, and really make the training programs and the workshops I do and, and the one-to-one meetings, all of which I deliver here at, at the University of Glasgow, as practical as can be. Because I know when I was doing my startup journey here, what I really was looking for. And I try to keep that in mind as as I continue to work as the enterprise advisor and really making an impact on on those who are trying to start their own journey themselves. This feels like it's a bit of a mean question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you had to give someone who's I don't know, perhaps they're 18 years old, they're at the start of their U of G arts journey, or perhaps their master's or even their PhD coming to the end of their PhD. If you had to give them some advice, if they're kind of looking at your journey and going, 
yeah, you know what, I think that's the pathway I'd like to follow. What kind of advice would you give them? Or if I'm feeling really mean, what advice do you wish you'd been given? It's okay to fail, right? There's a big stigma around failure. And people think, well, if I if I start this and it fails, like, you know, everybody's going to know that it failed because I will have told everybody that I started a business or, but that's okay. Failure is tuition. Failure is learning. It doesn't feel great. I'm not going to like sugarcoat it and say, oh, you know, nothing, nothing's wrong. Um, Failure, but it's okay to fail. It's okay to say, oh, that didn't work. But as long as you learn something from it, it can be really, really useful. And also just, you know, I, I think another piece of advice is, is you have more skill sets and more competencies than you think you do. And there are a lot of people around that are happy to support, whether that's formal, informal, you know, formal being things like student enterprise at Glasgow, any network, there's a very large ecosystem around Scotland for starting a business. Just ask for help. There's usually so many people that have been there they've been through it, or they know somebody that's been through it that they can put you into contact with. Basically, don't fear failure. If it happens, it happens. That doesn't even mean that the business idea was bad. It doesn't mean that you can't run a business. It just means that sometimes things didn't align, which happens, and that's okay. So so don't be afraid of failure. In fact, we, we kind of have an ethos at Education Evolve that we're aiming for failure because if we fail, we've, we have learned something. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we, we take ideas and jobs and just don't do them. But, you know, we very much look at trying to push the envelope of our own skill sets and we're constantly looking to personally develop and grow. Sometimes you take something that you think, oh, that we haven't done that before, but we know that, you know, skill sets from project A and skill sets from project B and skill sets from project E and my PhD and my team's own experiences in higher education, we can bring it together and and make it work. And so that that's and so really the advice is ask for help. Don't be afraid of failure and just just do it. It's really maybe bad business advice or bad bad advice in general, but I actually think it's really good. And that is um, wake up Monday morning and do things and then wake up Tuesday morning and do the things that worked on Monday. It can be that simple. Uh, you just got to get out of your own way, which I can say there have been multiple times where I did not get out of my own way and it caused a lot of stress and anxiety for no reason. I think that's really sound advice. And I think certainly from someone else who's done a PhD's perspective, the getting in your own way thing sounds very familiar. And I think the being afraid of failure is quite familiar. But equally, like I think PhDs and even undergrads, you get afraid about handing in a draft of an essay or the completed essay. And then it comes back and it's, you know, it's not top marks or whatever, and you feel a bit deflated. But actually, like you said, you know, you've learned something from it and that's really valuable. And yeah, yeah, being able to apply that to business, to other areas of life as well. I think that's really, really sound, sensible advice. Yeah. I mean, the the professor that I went to Rome with, Dr. Musgrove, in that class that kind of convinced me to go to Rome, it was my first like 10 page length paper. There was so much read on it that, you know, the pen ran out of ink, basically. And that was kind of like my first time that I was like, you know, no, this isn't easy. This isn't a breeze. This is hard. That was a draft paper. So in that course, you could submit a draft essay. They'd give you feedback. That way you could edit it. And on the final draft, when I submitted, uh, I I submitted my paper with a red pen already on it. That way it wouldn't run out of ink. Um, So (laughs) sometimes you just have to embrace the fact that it's going to be bad and it's going to be wrong. Um, But well, that's how you learn. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, the PhD, like I said, there were some 
some parts of the PhD that I had to almost unlearn mm. to move forward in the business. So yeah, that that's the striving for excellence and perfection that definitely can make it where you get in your own way sometimes. What's going to be next for you and what's going to be next for education evolved? What can you tell us that's not necessarily under um, non-disclosure at the moment? <laughs> yeah, so next for us, so right now we're we're kind of doing a full revamp of our website um, and everything else, because it's it's now almost three years old and it's time for for a new look. So we're we're working on that right now, and we're excited about that because we're we're really trying to push the envelope again, like like all things that we do, and really making that that a, and a unique immersive experience just by visiting us at the website. And so so we're excited about that. We're also hoping to hear back from the Innovate UK grant application we put in. And if we have that, we'll we'll have some exciting announcements about some AI education tools that we will be developing, looking looking at kind of business school application, but really especially, I think, useful for art students who are interested in entrepreneurship, getting valuable feedback on your own for that journey. So that's kind of what's what's coming up for us. We, we do have some other projects, but can't really speak too much to them at, at the moment. But if you kind of follow our socials or register for our newsletter on our website, you'll hear about them in, in due course. For me, myself personally, I've got some trips home coming up that I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, it's been about a year and a half since we've been home to visit family. So so really looking forward to that. And yeah, and then waiting to hear back from Converge and, and all the, the exciting bits. So yeah, lots going on. But you know, that, that's kind of where, where we're looking to in the next kind of six months time range. Are there any other businesses that you're involved in or supporting at the moment? I think there's potentially one that you mentioned at the top of the episode. So I'm the currently the business advisor for Scissortail Digital Marketing, which is a, another startup here based based here in Glasgow. And they are, uh, that that's another arts PhD graduate that will be starting that one. And so I, I've been working closely with them, helping them come to terms with kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the business world, because they, they really already have this the skill sets there to do what they need to do. They just need to go through understanding the process, but that's the easy stuff. That's the trainable, that's the teachable things, but really excited to see how that progresses as well. And, and looking at how they're going to use AI in a way that is focused on ethical usage and and not as a replacement, but as a tool. And, and I think that's the right outlook for AI uh, systems at the moment. So doing that as well. So that's quite light touch. So so not really a third hat because I don't think I can wear three at one time. Um, I'll, I'll keep to my two. But yeah, really exciting things coming coming from that as well. That's really where we're where I'm at and where education evolves at and, and where we're where we're trying to move to. If listeners want to find you and keep up to date with Education Evolved or with Student Enterprise and your work there, how can they get involved? A couple of ways. So I'm I'm on, we'll call it X, but what used to be Twitter, aka Twitter. Yeah. We're, I'm on Instagram. Education Evolves on both as well. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, and then, of course, like I said, probably maybe one of the better places is just our newsletter if you're if you're interested in keeping up to date with all things EE. And then for student enterprise, if, if you're interested in just getting in, engaged with the entrepreneurial community, again, it's not just business school students. In fact, they're sometimes a minority in the room. We have a platform called Stardium that you can register on. And then that's where we post all of our events, opportunities. You don't even have to have a business idea. You can just come along and learn. We host events, workshops year round, networking meetings, networking events, um, hackathons, workshops, all, all the above um, is year round. And we post that all on, on Stardium, but we're based in the Advanced Research Center 
And so has Education Evolved, incidentally, here on the main campus at the University of Glasgow. And so, you know, you can just stop by and, and get information. We have two new massive banners that ask you to join our startup community with QR codes to register for that that platform I had mentioned. Um, so there's lots of ways, but, you know, I'm always happy to, if anybody wants to reach out, um, send me an email. If you're curious about your own journey or, or, or starting along your own journey, whether it's an academic journey or an entrepreneurial journey, I'm, I'm always happy to sit down and have a coffee. If you would like to follow Education Evolved and everything that they are getting up to, all of their awards successes, you can do so on social media. You can find them on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at Education Evolved, and that is Evolved spelt E-V-O-L-V-D. You can find them on Instagram at underscore education underscore evolved, and you can also find them on LinkedIn as well. And that brings us to the end of our third season of the podcast. Thank you so much to Matthew and all of this season's other guests. I hope you've enjoyed hearing our conversations as much as I've enjoyed having them and recording them for you. I will be back in spring 2024 with even more stories from Glasgow for you. See you then. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts and Humanities by following us on social media at U of G Arts Hums or by visiting gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Dr. Sia Jackson. Music is by Coma Media. We'll see you next time. <laughs>